The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. How's it going, guys? How are we doing tonight? Doing good, doing good. Welcome back from Christmas break. So uh, here's our plan. If you haven't heard yet, we're going to be starting a new series starting tonight. Um, It's called Home Improvement. And we're going to be spending some time just kind of talking through relationships at home and uh, on every level, not just marriage or things like that. Um, But if you think and you're like, oh, that's a bummer because like I'm not married or I am or I know everything about marriage. I'm the perfect husband, whatever it is. I wanted to learn something new and I'm just going to hear the same old things. I think you'll see tonight that that's not the approach we're going to be taking with this. So um, I, I hope that you guys are going to enjoy it. We're going to spend six weeks doing this. Uh, then there's going to be a one-week break on Valentine's Day, so you guys can get the whole home improvement thing nailed, and you guys will be killing it in your relationships, and then go have a good Valentine's Day. Then we're going to start a series on biblical theology, and we're going to be teaching you guys how to take one theme and trace it throughout the entirety of Scripture, and we'll go through lots of different examples. By the end of that series, man, you guys should have a solid hold on how to read the entirety of redemptive history in the Bible. So I think it's going to be a really good time. Um, But today we're going to start out with this idea of covenants, which is uh, maybe for some of you guys a little different way of approaching um, the idea of of home improvement or of relationships, Uh, not just marriage, but relationships everywhere. There will be a lot of emphasis on marriage today, um, and I think that's justifiable. If you look at what's going on in our world or just look up some of the statistics regarding the effects of the family breakdown in the world around us right now, it really can be um, uh, blamed for about everything that's going on, from prison rates and addiction rates, financial issues, counseling issues, stress and anxiety issues. There are so many things that you can really trace back to the reality of a failed family dynamic, and the real root and core of those family dynamics is ultimately the relationship between husband and wife. If that relationship's off, None of the rest of it really has a chance, or at least it's insanely difficult um, for the children and for the people that come after that. So we will be focusing on that. However, that does not mean that if you're not married or not married yet or, you know, whatever state you are in life, that this doesn't apply to you. Because really the things we're going to talk about in the effects of covenant relationship on us, how they play out, really governs and affects every relationship that we have anywhere in our life, whether it be relationships with coworkers, relationships with unbelievers, friends, children, whatever the case may be. Um, so the implications on this are really broad, even if at times we seem to only be talking about marriage. Does that make sense? So everybody has to pay attention. Say amen. All right. So I'm going to try to do something a little different. Since we've been on Christmas break, uh, the church offices have been closed, and I have been on break myself. And so I I didn't want to or have the time really to to put a whole lot of slides together and things like that. But there's some stuff that I thought you might want to be able to write down. So I'm going to use just as an outline so that you can have some things to read. Um, Actually, these are some notes from a seminary class that I took a while back where we went through some of the covenant theology stuff. So I'm going to be putting some of that, and I'm going to try, if our technology will hold up, I'm going to try to be switching between between that and some different scriptures that we're going to need to go to as well. I understand maybe for some of you guys it might be harder to read. I'm, I'm kind of doing the best that I can on making it readable, but we'll see how it goes. And if it doesn't work, we will never do this again. Amen? All right. So here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about covenants and why covenants are important, why covenants throughout the entirety of scripture uh, really dictate the way a marriage relationship should work. 
and why that's important for us to understand, which I think is actually really, really cool. But it's going to take us through all of Scripture. The, the vocabulary of covenant is used all throughout scriptures, you can see here, um, the actual word itself, let me get a color that stands out here, is used 285 times in the Old Testament and 33 times in the New Testament. Is that working? Sweet. So these words exist throughout scripture, and they, they kind of govern all relationships between men, or between mankind, I should say, and God. So all human divine relationships are determined by and governed by the idea of covenants throughout Scripture. But it's more than just about how relationships, uh, um, in terms of human relationships and things, work. Take a look at what uh, Andreas Kostenberger actually said, this quote right here. He said, the concept of covenant forms the overall structural backdrop to the entire redemptive story of the Scriptures. To tell the story of how God has redeemed his people is to simply tell the story of God's covenantal relationships with them. So I think it's a really important thing for us to understand the way covenants work in the Bible because as you walk through them, it's telling us the entirety in great detail about how God has worked throughout history um, and how God has redeemed people to himself. So it's more than just understanding marriage. Marriage is a piece of a bigger story, and that is God and how he interacts with man. You guys tracking with me? So marriage is just a piece. Know this, marriage isn't the point. Know that. Marriage is a piece that points to the point, which is how God interacts with man. Does that make sense? And we'll see this as we're going through here, okay? So here's what we want to see. In Scripture, when the Bible was written and when these covenants were put together, it wasn't stuff that was just pulled out of thin air and created. God was working. Um, this is why we have a real historical approach. When we, when we teach the Scriptures, we want to understand the historical context of what's going on in the passages because God uses the things that are going on at that time to tell his story. So when God uses or talks or presents covenants to man throughout Scripture, he uses a model that was very common in ancient Near East, um, in the ancient Near East world for covenants. Um, it's referred to as a suzerain-vassal covenant. And in a suzerain-vassal covenant, it would be like two nations who are making a covenant with one another. So let's say America is going to make a covenant with Canada. Out of those two countries, who would seem to be the one that would be the power, the more sovereign, the, the bigger player in the covenant? Canada, clearly, right? So, um, no, that's clearly not true. So, in a suzerain vassal in a suzerain vassal covenant, you have two kingdoms that come together, and the two kings would make a covenant. The suzerain is the sovereign. The suzerain is the one who carries the authority, who tends to dictate a lot of the terms of the covenant. He's the boss, you might say. The vassal is the one that is submitted to. It's the lower party, you might say, in such a covenant. So when God institutes covenants with mankind, that's the model he uses. God is the, the sovereign. We are the vassal, the one submitted to or under the lordship of God. And in those covenants back in that day, in, in the uh, ancient Near East covenants, there was a certain structure that you see play out over and over and over through Scripture as these covenants are introduced. So in the covenants, especially those in the Old Testament and ancient Near East covenants, there's five different parts that appear. You don't have to write this down, but I want to share this with you because you'll see some of these things come up as we look at these other covenants, okay? The first is there's a preamble. 
It's usually the name of the king, maybe a list of the king's attributes. It's um, let's use, for example, Genesis chapter, or excuse me, Exodus chapter twenty as our example as we're looking at these. That is what covenant. Anybody know the name of that one? Oh, come on, somebody knows this. Mosaic covenant. Anyone know that? Ten commandments. You know the ten commandments, right? Okay, you're like I don't know that because you haven't taught us that yet. All right, we'll get there in a minute. Ten commandments. Okay, the Ten Commandments we will look at as the Mosaic Covenant in just a little while. How does it start out? Look closely. I am the Lord your God. So there's a declaration of who is actually involved in this particular covenant, right? The second thing that happens is there's a historical prologue. And this is basically, it gives some sort of context for the history of the relationship for the two parties that's more than sheer force. It's more than, you'll do this because I said so. These are covenants that are built around relationships. And so, for example, if we use the example of Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 20, the Mosaic covenant, look what he says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, verse 2. So there's this historical context that's brought into the covenant before God gives that. He says, this is who I am, and this is what our relationship has been, uh, the kind of the history of what our relationship has been, Okay. Next, there are stipulations, and this is maybe the most important part for you to be aware of for what we're going to be talking about today. The stipulations of a suzerain vassal covenant are, you will do this, and I will do this. So I am covenanting with you, and for this covenant to work out, you will do this and this and this and this and this, and I will do this and this and this and this and this. Does that make sense? So there are stipulations, there are responsibilities that each party in the covenant are required to uphold for that covenant to exist. But then along with that, the number four is there are sanctions. In these covenants, the sanctions mean, and if you don't do this, here's what will happen. But if you do do this, then here are the blessings, if you will, that will occur as a result of that. And then the final part would be this. There was oftentimes in that day a deposit of the written text or covenant. It was considered to be a really important document. So they would take that document that had been signed on by, these, by the, the two parties involved, and it would be put in a safe place. Anybody know where maybe this particular covenant, a safe, important place where this particular covenant ended up? Anybody know? Ark of the Covenant, right. So you're tracking with me. So this is what actually happens. So this covenant model happens over and over and over and over throughout Scripture. And this is the covenant model that God is using, not just to dictate relationships, but to tell a story and and to present something much bigger than the actual relationship between people, but about the relationship between God and his people. Okay? You guys are tracking with me on that, okay? So this is what we're going to be doing. So let's take a look at what some of these actual covenants are. The first one is this. It's the Noahic Covenant. The Noahic Covenant. And you can understand why it's called the Noahic Covenant because it involves who? Yeah, you guys are sharp tonight. Awesome. That break did you good. So in the Noahic Covenant, let's go to Genesis chapter... Wait, what was that? Oh, see, we're already doing it. We're already doing it. Come on, Apple. Don't fail us. Genesis 8, verse 20. All right? Here. Genesis 8... 20. Boom. All right. So in Genesis 8, verse 20, this is after the flood, after they found the olive branch, after they've hit dry ground. And what happens? Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. 
And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse this ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never again will I strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold, heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Moving forward just for the sake of time. Verse 8, Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring, and every living creature that is with you. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Before I go to the next page, anybody want to guess what the sign was? The rainbow. That's right. I have set my bow in the cloud. So here's what's happening. This, the, the intention, remember, if you know the story, of man's heart was only evil all the time. And this flood comes that cleanses the earth, but Noah finds grace, and the ark is built, and Noah and his family are saved and rescued, and they're there for a really long time, and then they meet dry ground as the waters uh, begin to recede, and now God comes to Noah, and he makes a covenant with him, but there's something different about this covenant than all these other covenants that we're going to be looking at in just a little while. The stipulations are only one-sided. Did you notice that? I will never again destroy you like this. There's no other stipulation. Now, that's a specific type of covenant. That's called a unilateral covenant. It means the person who is making the covenant is saying, this is what I'm going to do, and there are no conditions on your side that you can violate that would cause me to not do this. This is what I'm going to do. I'm making a covenant with you. You have no responsibility here whatsoever. Does that make sense? Not that they didn't have responsibility before God, because he does give them law, but it is not a stipulation of God refusing to destroy the earth again. It's a unilateral covenant. It's, it's a one-directional, if you will, approach. But then they're going to be different after that. So as we know, the story goes on, and now we get to the story of Abraham. In the story of Abraham, we are introduced to what's known as the Abrahamic covenant. It may be the most commonly referred to covenant in the New Testament, primarily because Paul wrote most of the New Testament, and he loves the Abrahamic covenant for reasons that we'll cover in just a few minutes. But the Abrahamic covenant is in Genesis 12. So let's go there. Genesis chapter, shortcut, 12, boom, go. All right. Apple's tracking with us so far, right? Nice. Now the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram at the time, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And he who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, some people, it's named the Abrahamic covenant because it's, the covenant is presented to Abraham. But the covenant's not really with Abraham per se. Abraham becomes, if you will, the mediator of the covenant because the covenant is actually with all the nations of the earth. He's saying, listen, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you, I'm going to bless the nations. But for those who dishonor you, I will be a curse to them, or I will curse them. So those are the stipulations. You're going to honor and you know the honor the Abrahamic nation, which is going to become who? Israel. But those who dishonor, 
And that's where kind of the stipulations and all these kind of things come from. Now, it, pre- it gets presented a little bit more. At this particular time, Abram is just a, a, he's a moon worshiper in a completely different land. He doesn't have any idea any of these things are going on. And we're told later that, man, he had incredible faith because he's just trusting God is what he's doing. He's going to a land he'd never even been to. Land he didn't even know where he was going when he went. But he trusted God at his word. And so as Abraham grows in relationship with God, this covenant is expanded and given in more and more detail. So we get it first in Genesis chapter 12. You get a little bit more in Genesis chapter 15. And then you get a little bit more in Genesis chapter 17. Another sign is given to it. If the sign in the previous covenant was the rainbow, anybody remember or know what the sign of the covenant in the Abrahamic covenant is? It's circumcision. We like rainbows better, a lot of people probably said. But that's what they went with. That was the sign that God gave them. It was a sign of this particular covenant that was given. And this covenant was done through, you guys remember the whole idea of cutting covenant? Like this is where the language comes in. Though God comes and does the work, if you know the story. But that's for something later on. We won't, oh man, I'd love to chase that rabbit trail. But we just, discipline, discipline. I don't have time. So um, that's not what we're going to do today. But the Abrahamic covenant becomes really really important in scripture. And from this covenant, we see that God will bless. You can see him right here. God will bless Abraham. No, get rid of that. Get rid of that. Mark, there we go. God will bless Abraham. Abraham will mediate bless God's blessing to others. Abraham will mediate God's curse. Abraham will become a great nation. God will give to Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan. Abraham will have many descendants. This covenant will be established with Abraham's descendants. And God will be the God of Abraham and his descendants and will be his people. Ultimately, he will dwell in their midst. So just some random observations for that. It affects the affairs of nations. Blessing is promised through them. These blessings are given in holistic form. But more importantly, there is relationship with God promised. So through this covenant, there's going to be relationship with God. I will be their God. That's going to be a recurring thing that's going to come up over and over and over. So that's the second one. The next covenant that comes up that is also important is this one. It's the Mosaic Covenant that we've just been talking about, right? In Exodus chapter 20. This one is also, oh, I didn't say this about the Abrahamic Covenant. When you have a covenant where it's only one direction, like the the Noahic Covenant, we call that a what? Unilateral. But a bilateral covenant is when two parties have responsibilities in this particular covenant. And so that's what's in the Abrahamic covenant. That's what exists in the Mosaic covenant. In the Mosaic covenant, what are the things that God promises to do for the, other, for the nation of Israel? He says, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be your God of blessing. I'm going to protect you. It's, it's throughout the Old Testament law, which is really... The Old Testament law, we tend to look at the law as like, these are all the things that God said, this is what you have to do to be a good little boy and a good little girl. That's not really what it is. The Old Testament law is the detailed writing of the actual covenant that God is entering into with the people of Israel. And it's what says, this is what I will do. I will be your God. You will be my people. And it gives to Israel the stipulations of what it looks like for them to uphold their end of the covenant, which is the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law, the, um, all of that stuff, the, the moral law that Israel's given. That's what they are to do to enter into covenant to be God's people. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 29, which, man, I wish we had time to go through, but Deuteronomy 29 and 30 is such an important part of the Bible. 
Because if you don't understand what's going on in Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, at the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, you have no hope for understanding anything that's written in the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. Because here's the deal. In Deuteronomy, at the very end, when they're get, they, all the stipulations have been given, the law has been recited to the people, and then it's the section referred to as blessings and curses. And in that text, it says, listen, if you uphold your covenant, this is what I will do. I'll make your name great. I'll make you a great people. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. But if you don't, and then there are the curses that the people of Israel will endure. And you read through the curses, and what you see is a description of where Israel is in the prophetic writings. They won't be in the land anymore. They won't be God's people. They won't be living in blessing. They're in exile. They don't even exist as a nation anymore. They've been taken away to the, by the Babylonians. They've been taken away by the Assyrians. And so Israel, in the prophetic writings, is experiencing the cursings that were given to them in Deuteronomy in the Mosaic Covenant. Does that make sense, guys? So this is super important, okay? And we'll get to why in just a few minutes. So that's the Mosaic Covenant. Again, not just a list of here's how to be good Christian boys and girls. It's the terms of how God is going to enter into relationship with his people. So that's the Mosaic Covenant. Now another one is given that's really, really important, and that is the Davidic Covenant. And the Davidic Covenant is in 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16. So let's go here. Um, why don't, there we go. Seven. What did I say it was? We'll go to verse 6. Uh, well, it's verse 8, really. So here's what it says. You guys remember this story? So David is, the kingdom's just doing really good. David's king of Israel. Things are going well, and he's built this house. He's got this palace that he lives in. But he looks over, and he sees God's house. What is God's house at this time, someone? It's the synagogue. It's a tent. And he's thinking, like, man, I know I'm king of Israel and all this stuff, but I'm only king because God made me that. I was just a little nobody, and now I'm living in this fancy palace, and God is in a tent? That's not fair. I'm going to build him a house. I want to honor him. And so God, through the prophet Nathan, first Nathan's like, yeah, do it, do it. But then God comes to Nathan and gives a message to David, and the message starts here in verse 8, and it says, Now therefore you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be prince over my people of Israel. And I have been with you everywhere you went. Is this starting to sound familiar? He's, he's, this is the Lord your God speaking to David. So he's given the identification of who's involved here. Now he's given the history of the relationship like we see in the format from previously. I took you from pasture following the sheep that you should be prince over my people. I've been with you everywhere you went. And I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest over your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father. And he will be to me a son. 
When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever, or excuse me, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is referred to, like I said, as the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Davidic covenant is birthed out of the Abrahamic covenant. It says this is the people that God has said in the Abrahamic covenant that he's going to be a blessing to all nations. And now he, he kind of narrows the field and says there's going to be one out of this lineage, out of your lineage even, David, that's going to be this new ruler, and he's going to lead you into that place of ultimate blessing that you as a nation have not yet experienced. He will keep you at peace with your people. He's going to be the ruler whose throne will be established forever and ever and ever. And that's referred to, the Davidic, referred to as the Davidic covenant. So if you're Israel and you're thinking about these things, it's a pretty good deal, right? God's not going to destroy the earth the way he said before. That's the Noahic covenant. God's going to make us a great nation and bless all the world through us. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Um, God is going to be our God and our people. He's going to protect us. He's going to be there with us. All these things from the Mosaic covenant. And then in the Davidic covenant, God is going to bring this leader out from our midst that's going to be king forever. Ever. His throne will never fade. We will never have to worry about enemies attacking us or taking us out. I mean, keep in mind, if you know the history of the people of Israel, somebody is always fighting with them, right? Like always. And they're telling them right then, you will never have to deal with this again. There's going to be a king that will vanquish all of your foes and lead you to this place of blessing. If you're Israel, it sounds like a really good deal, right? Well, here's the problem. Other than the Noahic Covenant, all of them have stipulations that Israel has to uphold for all those things to come about. So how does Israel do? They fail in every possible way. They, that's why if you think about the, now this is where I'm telling you that you have to understand these covenants to really understand the prophetic writings. Think about the things that the prophets are always saying about Israel in the Old Testament. They say things like, you were unfaithful. They call Israel what? A whore. We were in covenant and you went to other people. They tell, he constantly, through the prophets, is calling Israel out for their failure to uphold the stipulations. He tells them, you were supposed to be a blessing to other people. You were going to be the ones who I bless, and that blessing would filter out to other nations of the world. But instead, what did you do? What does he say about Israel? He says, you just got fat. You hoarded all the blessings. Instead of becoming a vessel through which they flow to everyone else, you just made everything about you. You didn't honor me in the covenant. You were unfaithful to me. That's the language that comes up over and over and over. Israel has failed. And so where are they as a result? Well, they're in exile. They are so far away from all of the things that have been promised in these covenants. They don't have their own land. They do not have peace with their own people. There isn't even a kingdom, much less a king, whose throne could be there forever. It seems like all hope is lost. They've blown it. They missed their chance. God's been like, all right, well, you made your bed, sleep, and they're done. But that's not all the prophets write about, is it? The prophets start writing about something else, and it's referred to as the new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31, let's go there. Anybody know the verse I'm going for? Super easy. Jeremiah 31, 31. 
So Israel's in exile. They're experiencing the destruction. They're experiencing the curse from their failure to uphold their covenant with God. And then look what happens. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. So he's saying, those covenants that I made before when I took them out of Israel, it's not going to be like that anymore. And what was that covenant? Here are the things you're going to do, and here are the things I'm going to do. So then what is this covenant going to look like? Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. See the history of the relationship being presented again. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. So even in there, there's that idea of unfaithfulness that's taking place in the covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive them their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Okay, what's different about this covenant? Because he says, this covenant's not going to be anything like the previous covenant. And here's what he says he's going to do. What's the difference? Somebody tell me. He's going to do it all. We are no longer in a bilateral covenant. There are no stipulations given for mankind to have to do. In Ezekiel, he goes on to even more detail. He says, I'm going to take this heart of stone out of you, and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. He's saying, all that stuff that you could never do before because you were so broken, it was a heart issue. You had no hope. But I'm going to take that heart out of you. I'm going to give you this heart of flesh. I'm going to write my will upon that heart. And suddenly, all the failures that you have experienced over and over and over, trying to keep the covenant and failing, I'm taking it upon myself now. And suddenly this new covenant is presented to the people of Israel. It's not going to be like that anymore. There's going to be hope. And interestingly, interestingly enough, he never in the prophetic writings goes back and says that all of those other things that they had disqualified themselves for, all the failure, all the blessing they should have had, he never goes back and says, and none of that stuff's going to happen. Now, why is that incredibly, incredibly important? Let's go back to our notes right here. Because in the new covenant, it points to this person named Jesus, right? That was really anticlimactic, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenants. And then here's what you have to notice. It's not like God just goes, okay, okay, okay. That didn't work. Let's throw all that old stuff away and let's start over. That's not what happens. He sends the Davidic king, the one that was promised. And here's what happens. So Jesus is not, doesn't get rid of it. He becomes the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Check this out. Every New Testament description of the present throne of Jesus uses language from the Davidic covenant. Everyone. So when you read all of the New Testament stories about Jesus as king, all of them are grabbing 2 Samuel chapter 7 language and saying, that guy that I promised you, this is him. From the very, like you go read when, when uh, the angel comes to Mary. We covered this, you guys, when we went through Luke chapter 1, right? When the angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have this son, it's almost a word-for-word retelling of the Davidic covenant. Didn't get rid of the old. Jesus came and fulfills the old. Does that make sense? Number two, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. 
Jesus becomes the one. If Abraham was supposed to be the mediator, or the people of Israel in particular, the mediator of blessing, so through them all the worlds were going to be blessed, well, that's what Jesus becomes. Through Jesus, there's peace. Through Jesus, there's salvation. Through Jesus, there's fulfillment. He becomes the mediator of blessing to the rest of the world. And here's why this is what I was saying was really, really, really important. Paul, in particular, pulls from the Abrahamic covenant in the New Testament more than anything because he's the apostle to the Gentiles. So while all the other apostles are writing to the Jewish people and they're talking a lot about Moses, they're talking about all these other covenants, Paul is constantly talking about the Abrahamic covenant because he views himself as a mediator of that new covenant to the nations of the world. So if you go back to the Abrahamic covenant blessing, through you I will bless all the people of the world. Well, Paul believes his calling in life is to carry news of that blessing to the rest of the world, and that's why we study his missionary journeys in the way that we do. So Jesus becomes the fulfiller of the Abrahamic covenant. doesn't do it away and just throw it away and start over. He fulfills it. Number three, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Mosaic covenant. Jesus perfectly does everything in the Old Testament law. He fulfills it all perfectly in a way that we could not. That's really important. Why? We touched on this before, and we've done it before, but whenever people go, oh, what's the gospel? Oh, Jesus died for our sins. Yeah, that's great. Um, that's where forgiveness comes from, but that's not where righteousness comes from. And the, the truth of the matter is, is that we, it's this idea of double imputation. In the gospel, our record got put on Jesus's shoulder on the cross, and he was treated as if he had lived the way that we did. And what is the way that we did? failing in every area in those covenant stipulations. That all went on Christ. But Christ's record of perfectly his entire life on earth, fulfilling and living in perfect obedience to God, all of that Mosaic law, that record goes on us. So don't just go, man, it's that Jesus died for our sins. The life of Jesus is really important because we kind of need that righteousness. Does that make sense? So that's where that's coming from. So Jesus becomes the fulfiller of the Mosaic covenant. Doesn't do away with it. He even says, doesn't he? No, I haven't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it, he says. So Jesus becomes this person, and then Jesus inaugurates and becomes the mediator of the new covenant. The way to forgiveness is through Christ. The way to salvation is through Christ. The way that we have relationship with God now is through Christ. Jesus, and even in the way he says it, I am the door. He becomes the one who is the mediator of and inaugurates this new covenant, which will ultimately be fulfilled in, in its, uh, um, or consummated, I should say, when Jesus returns and takes his place on earth on the throne, the throne promised in the Davidic covenant that will never, ever, ever go away. Are you guys tracking with me? This is, if you've never heard some of these things, I understand some of this kind of stuff can be kind of confusing, but hang with me because this is really important for what we're going to talk about. Here's what this tells us in the end. It is because of Christ that we can now re-enter relationship with God. That's what got broken in the fall. Because in, back in the days of Adam, God creates Eden, which was perfect, but not finished. It, it was without error, but it wasn't done. That's why God says to Adam, be fruitful, fulfill the earth, subdue it. He, he's inviting Adam to work with him on his agenda for the kingdom of God. He's inviting Adam to partner with him in relationship and in mission. That's what's going to happen there. But when Adam sins, 
He goes off of God's agenda, goes on to his own agenda, and that relationship is broken. So when Christ comes, we are brought back into, we're given the opportunity to re-engage in relationship with God and to re-engage in mission with God, to be part of this new covenant that's to come, to be part of the kingdom that will be fully consummated at the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is what is accomplished for us through Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So that's super, super important. So here are the theological implications on this, okay? So hang with me, and now we're going to get into marriage, right? What time are we? Oh, man, we got to hurry. So here are the theological implications. We know that God is sovereign over all relationships. He's the suzerain. He's, even, even if you look at the different covenants, he's the one who always instigates them. Never do you see man going to God and saying, I got an idea. Here's the covenant I've put together. If I do this, you do this. Like our kids do. Dad, if I clean my room, can I have ice cream? Like you don't see that. God is the one who condescends to man and instigates these covenants, which is amazing. I mean, he's not a disinterested king off somewhere else. He's an interested sovereign who comes to, if you will, people. He pursues relationship. That's really important in just a minute. The second thing is this. Relationships are ordered. All the relationships that God lays out are ordered. God is God, man is man, the recipient of incredible grace. God doesn't just, relationships aren't just sort of free-flowing. There's an order to them. There's a purpose to them. There's a mission to them, and God does that. Now, what does any of this have to do with marriage? Let me show you. Matthew chapter 19. Actually, let me just, uh, let's do this. I'll just put these other notes up here, and you guys can read ahead and then go to sleep if you want, but here we go. What does this have to do with marriage? Marriage is, number one, marriage is God's doing. Take a look at this verse, Matthew 19. Jesus is teaching. In Matthew 19, verse 4, he says this. Have you not read that he who created them, let's do this. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. I want you to notice something. Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Who created them at the beginning? God did. But then look, and said. So in Genesis chapter 2, we have the first wedding, you might say, and we're going to get to in just a few minutes. Well, we can even, uh, we don't really have time. I'm not going to go there. So in Genesis chapter 2, what's going on? God is in relationship with Adam. Adam's going about the business, the the ministry. He's serving, you might say. He's on mission with God. He's filling the earth. Well, he's not filling it yet. He's by himself. But he's subduing it. He's he's in dominion over the earth. And so God brings all the animals by. And he's like, name them. Adam, that's your job. I'll let you name them all. He's like, all right, let's do this. So a dog comes up first. And he's like, well, that's obviously the best one. That's God spelled backwards, dog. So we'll do that. Sends those through. I'm a dog person in case you can't tell. So, So he... He's letting Adam do all this. Adam's naming the animals. He's kind of doing this role. But along the way, Adam starts noticing, man, everybody's all partnered up but me. I'm kind of alone in this. And then he goes to sleep. Eve is created from Adam. And what is it that is said about Eve? That she's his helpmate. Does not mean Adam's the king and she's the vassal. That's not what that means. What it means is, They are partners. Partners in what? They're serving God. 
they're on mission with God. They're fulfilling what God has called them to do in that place. And so they become partners together. And so think about the first time when he first sees her. He goes to sleep, and then suddenly here's God. He brings Eve into the garden. And picture marriage ceremonies even right now as we all stand in this like garden. Everybody in Oregon seems to get married outside most of the time unless it's a winter thing. Um, so it's like garden setting or whatever, and everybody stands, and here comes the bride with the father walking her down the aisle. Where do you think we got all that? That came from Genesis. All those customs are based out of the scriptures, right? And so what, Je what Jesus is saying here, look, have you not read that he who said, or he who created them, male and female, and said, that means, let's go to a pen right here. That means from right here to right here are whose words? God's. So when you read that in Genesis, it's not just something that, uh, that the writer of Genesis threw in. It's not just something usually accredited to Moses. This is a quote. If you had a red-letter Bible, it should be in red. These are the words of God in Genesis chapter 2, and it says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's in Genesis 2. God created marriage from the beginning. And it was part of the plan. It's why he even, he even has Adam naming animals with this in mind, knowing that this is where he's going. God created it. That means he's sovereign over it. It means we don't get to redefine it. It means God did it. And so that's really important to understand. It would be so easy for us in the Christian world to just go, oh, marriage can just be whatever. You guys just, that's oh, fine. You get, we look at marriage now as an individual right. It's not an individual right. It is an institution created by God for a purpose. And because he's sovereign over it, we don't have the ability, even if we want to, we are not the ones to rewrite that. And Jesus in, is quoting all of this in his teaching in Matthew 19. So thousands of years later, Jesus is teaching and he is upholding God's design and saying, this is what God did. Marriage is God's doing. So that's important. The second thing is this. Marriage is God displaying. So in, in Ephesians chapter 5, this phrasing is going to come up again. In Ephesians chapter 5 now is the text. Everybody goes to women submit, uh, men love your word. You, know, you guys know that whole passage. But, but I think the place you actually have to start to understand what's going on in, in Ephesians chapter 5 is actually this verse right here. Take a look at this. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Who said that? God did. And then look, Paul tells us, what this is all about. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to who? Christ and the church. Do you know what that means? That means in Genesis 2, God created marriage knowing then it's about Christ and the church. It means the crucifixion he already knew. It means the rescue plan was already in place, and he created marriage to display God. This is what it is. That's why when you go through and you read about the relationships in there, what does it say? It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, dying for her. He's saying, listen, this is how you do this. 
Your marriage relationship is intended to give a picture of a gospel act. Marriage is gospel reenactment. And so here's how you do this, man. You die to yourself because Christ died for the church. He gave himself up for her. So men, you die to her. And he's talking about this kind of relationship, the purpose of which is to actually point to the new covenant. Christ is the new covenant. Now, here's why this is super important. Listen, how do people tend to approach marriage now? They approach it from the old covenant. If you do this, I'll do this. But what are we actually doing in marriage ceremonies? Go back to the garden picture. The father's walking the wife right down the aisle, the bride-to-be. The two stand before each other. There's a mediator of the covenant. That's the pastor who's standing there in front of them. There are witnesses to the covenant that are in the congregation that are watching. A, a marriage covenant, or um, excuse me, a marriage ceremony has become sort of like this touchy-feely, let's have our dream wedding and that we'll be able to look back to and go, oh, and it is. I mean, it's sentimental, it's beautiful, and it's all those things. But a marriage ceremony is a covenant-making ceremony where a husband and wife stand in front of each other with a mediator of the covenant there, with witnesses of the covenant there, and what do they say to one another? In sickness or in health, in, until death do us part, richer or for poor, good times or bad times, what kind of covenant is that? It's a unilateral covenant. In a marriage ceremony, a husband stands in front of the bride-to-be, his wife, with a mediator here, witnesses there, and he is copying, pointing to the new covenant Christ has made with us. And he's saying to her, I will never leave you. If we're poor, I'm staying. If we're rich, I'm staying. If we're sick, no matter what it is, I'm staying. And he doesn't say, if we're poor, I'm staying. If we're rich, I'm staying. I mean, as long as you are nice to me, don't nag me, let me hang out with my friends. Whatever. None of that's there. The purpose of a marriage ceremony, when we say those things, is to remove the conditions that would cancel the covenant. Do you understand that? You are making a unilateral covenant that says, I will stay just like Jesus does, who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then the same exact thing happens on the other side. The wife makes the same statement back. She doesn't go, okay, as long as you do all those things you just said, then I'll do this. That's not what happens. That'd be a terrible wedding ceremony, by the way. If you've ever heard that, please tell me what pastor did that. That's a terrible ceremony. It's a ceremony that is making covenant with one another in front of witnesses, in front of the mediator, but under the sovereign authority of God. And God is the one who says, you do all of these things because it's pointing to something different. It's pointing, marriage isn't the point Marriage is a vessel by which we point to Jesus. That's the purpose of the whole thing. But right now, we tend to treat in our society marriage as an Old Testament covenant. As long as you do these things, I'll do these things, and we'll be fine. But the moment that you don't do these things, blessings and curses, man, I am out. That's how people look at marriage. That's Old Covenant. Jesus fulfilled those things. Those things are gone now New covenant pointing to our relationship with God. That's the purpose of marriage. That's why, take a look at this verse right here, Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, 
meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, hey, look, when someone wrongs you, you don't go, ah, you broke covenant, I'm out. No, you forgive them, and you stay with them. Why? Because when you break covenant with God, when you have wrong covenant with God, what has God done? He pursues relationship with you. He forgives you your sins. His mercies are new every morning. And so you're going to be doing these things in this relationship in the same way. So the same way that God um, is compassionate to you, in the same way God is kind to us, in the same way God is humble, meek, patient, bears with us, if there's a complaint against us, he forgives us as the Lord has forgiven you, that's what you're going to do. And in that, you are painting a picture, you are displaying the relationship God has made with man through your marriage. It's a huge thing, a huge thing. So why is this so important? We're closer to being done than you probably realize, and I got five minutes to do it, so we have to hurry. Why is this so important that our marriage model this? Why is this such a big deal? A couple different things. Number one, Our primary mission in life is to be witnesses of the gospel. So Jesus comes. He raises from the dead. He brings the apostles together. He does teachings about the kingdom. What is the mission Jesus gives his people? He says, go and be witnesses, right? Go be witnesses. I've made, so think of the marriage ceremony. It's like God has made covenant with us, and now we're witnesses of this amazing covenant God has made. He's saying, now go tell everybody about this incredible thing that's just taking place. And so, if our primary mission in life is to be witnesses of the gospel, and if, if we know that marriage is done to be a display of God, then why does that become important? Well, it gives us an opportunity to showcase God's grace to others, especially in a time when people are old covenant marriage people leaving for any reason. When we stick it out, people learn things. But even more than that, because I got to be honest with you, like a lot of times you you may not get that opportunity a ton to go, yeah, my wife. In fact, you, you almost maybe shouldn't to some degree. Like you're talking with someone who's not a believer and you're like, man, my wife, she is a pill. But I forgive her because Jesus forgave me. She's such a pill, dude. You have no idea. Here's what she did just yesterday. You won't believe this. And then, but I forgive her. It's my cross to bear. No, that's not the but, but I'll tell you, look at this. Our kids, though, our kids, our kids learn things about God and learn things about the gospel through how our relationships are ordered at home, don't they? Let, let me just ask it this way. Since most people are like me who came from homes that ended up being broken or were dysfunctional on some level, any of you guys still carrying baggage around about how you might view or be tempted to view your relationship with God because of that? Oh, man, I am. My dad was always frustrated with me. My dad only showed love to me if I was doing things really well. Well, what's that a picture of? It's old covenant. I'm going to bless you as long as you're doing good. But the moment you mess up, I'm out. And what eventually happened in our relationship? My dad left. So how did I view God for many, many years? And how am I still sometimes tempted to view God even today? I messed up today, and God is probably super upset with me. But is that the reality? No. Because the wrath towards my sin was enacted on Christ took that on. He paid the full penalty for that. God loves me. I have perfect approval from God. And so our kids begin to learn. Like they may not be able to understand the doctrines of of grace. They won't understand covenant theology. They won't understand all those kind of things. But they can learn about gospel unconditional love in the way that they see mom and dad love one another no matter what. 
I can think of a time, um, it was a long time ago, my wife and I, we never, ever, ever, ever fight. So I, it's, it was hard for me to find an example of this. But, um, but a few years ago, my wife and I, we had, we had a good one. You know what I mean? We, have a good, we had a good one. And we were in our room, and we, 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 we think we're like in a private place, and we can fight, and they're not going to hear it, and we can duke it out and all that kind of stuff. And then, I mean, we didn't actually duke it out, but you know what I mean. And you got to be clear, people don't know. So, um, so we're in there, and we think it's all over, and then I open the doors of the bedroom when the fight's still kind of going on, when it hasn't been done, and, and there's my daughter Hannah bawling. Why? Because she's scared to death, whether she knows it or not, she's scared to death that our relationship is Old Covenant. She's scared to death that this fight has happened, and because we have failed one another, or I've sinned against her, or she's sinned against me, or whatever the case may be, she's scared to death that we will leave and be over. And in those moments, she gets to see, man, even though that happened, they loved one another, and they're not perfect, but they stuck it out. And you know what she learns from that is she starts to learn if I blow it real bad too, dad's not going to leave. Dad'll stick it out. Mom will stick it out. Mom's going to be here. She starts learning about the love of God because of our relationships. And just look at the, the baggage people are sorting out because of failed relationships at home all over our culture just today. Like the, it's so important that we have that gospel example even for our kids. And number two here, you can't experience true love without it because you can never be completely genuine, completely vulnerable. I totally stole this from Jeremy, and he'll probably break down some of this stuff a little more, but, but this is so true. Like You can never be completely vulnerable with someone else if there's always a fear that they're just going to leave because then you're like, i got to be careful what I show them, and i got to be careful what I tell them. And I messed up, but I better not tell them. I better hide that because then they're going to be mad. And who knows what that will lead to. You never find, you can never really just be like, this is me, wounds and all. If you're not in a situation of total commitment, no one will understand unconditional love if they're in an old covenant relationship. Because there's always a condition but it's new covenant gospel marriage is the only place that you'll ever be able to experience that. And then number three, there's this. Uh, no other human relationship will teach you about God's grace and love more than marriage will. Um, and then I actually was thinking about that. I was like, eh, parenting maybe too. Because we start learning like, oh man, they blew it and they messed it up and they let me down and my kid is driving me crazy. I can't stand then Oh yeah, I, that's how... God looks at me as I fail over and over and over, but yet he shows me grace and he's patient with me and he teaches me and he's willing to let me grow over time. And all. that's how we learn. Like nothing will teach you more about how God feels about you than you being in a relationship where you have to live this way towards someone else. That's how it happens. It's like you never learn the Bible better than when you're learning it because you're about to teach it to someone else. Same thing. Like you, you're living the stuff out. It's gospel reenactment, and that's you, you won't learn the gospel in any other place. Now, I want to make one last point. We'll be done. What happens when our marriage doesn't look like the gospel? <laughs> Show of hands. How many? No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Here's what tends to happen, though. We know these things, right? We believe these things. This is what marriage looks like. This is what covenants look like. I understand this whole covenant thing. It's not about the old covenants before. It's about the new covenant. I understand all this stuff. But then when our marriage gets to a place that it doesn't look like a gospel marriage, we can be tempted to go, yeah, man, that's just too bad I already blew it. 
I should just start over and I'll get it right next time. And so what ends up happening is a gospel picture becomes like the definition of whether a marriage is succeeding or not. And if you're not nailing it in these areas, then you're failing. That's what people can think. But think about what I said earlier. Jesus became the avenue through which we were able to re-engage in relationship with God. See, marriage isn't the point. Relationship with God is the point. And so if through Jesus we were able to re-engage with God, then we can look at our relationships in our marriage and we can go, okay, no matter how jacked up my relationship is with my wife, no matter how in exile it might seem right now, no matter how far away from the holy land of Canaan that I thought it was going to be on that perfect wedding day, we are in exile and I'm in Babylon and she's in Assyria and we are nowhere near what we're supposed to be. But God pursued us. And through Jesus, we were able to re-engage in relationship with God and on mission for God. And so the gospel doesn't just become the standard, it becomes the tool and the mechanism by which, no matter how bad our marriage gets, we can re-engage with one another over and over and over. It, it's not like, man, if I had a gospel marriage, I'd be happy, but I don't, so what am I supposed to do now? Engage. You engage. Over and over and over again. So, because this is what marriage is. In marriage, we are bending our experience in the vertical relationship between us and God. We are bending it to a horizontal situation with the people that we deal with in life. So all the things that we experience with God, we are now turning and bending, if you will, to the relationships we experience on earth. And that's why in Colossians it says, you're to be patient, you're to be this kind of person with everybody. We just saw that in the text. Where was that at? In Colossians, put on as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness. Those are the things we've experienced in our vertical relationship with God, and we're now bending those things to other people. And the only way you can do that is through a relationship with God by constantly engaging in the relationship with God that we've been getting access to. John Piper said this, this is a great quote. In marriage, you live hour by hour in glad dependence on God's forgiveness and justification and promised future grace, and you bend it out towards your spouse hour by hour as an extension of God's forgiveness and justification and promised help. That's the purpose of it. The, the only way you can reenact the gospel in your marriage is if you're constantly reflecting on the gospel in your own life. And it is through those benefits that you're able to project those things out to other relationships. And it goes beyond just marriage. It's how you treat other people. I mean, all these are the way that we're supposed to treat everybody we have relationship with, right? Compassionate hearts, with kindness, with humility, with meekness, and with patience. Like, that's our responsibility as Christians and how we relate to everyone. And we do that through the understanding of the vertical relationship bent towards others. Does that make sense? So for the next few weeks, that's the foundation we're working from when we talk about the importance of we're going to cover friendships. Like, how do we be friends in these relationships? Not just in marriage, but in our friendships outside the church. We're going to cover sex, always a winning, you know, crowd pleaser. We're going to get, like, we're going to cover all of these, parenting, we're going to cover all of these different kinds of things from the standpoint of we are recipients of God's new covenant grace, 
on mission with God to spread the good news of his new covenant, and one of the vessels by which we do that is through marriage, which is a New Testament picture of the goodness and mercy of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Was that too much? Are we all good? We're done. Perfect. All right. Will you guys stand with me and let's pray? That was a lot to cover. You guys did awesome. Thank you for humoring me on some of that. Let's just pray right now for for understanding and application of these things and also for the weeks ahead as well. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for this picture of covenants, of how you relate to us, and we thank you more than anything for the grace you've poured out on us, for the new covenant you've given us, that, Lord, you took it upon yourself. You didn't wait till we were deserving. You engaged. And I pray, God, you would continue as you grow us to give us the ability to do the same thing, that by the power of your Spirit, you would give us the ability to engage the relationships around us, to take that same blessing we've received from you and mediate that to the people around us, especially at home. Lord, I pray for our homes. So many home situations are in so much trouble. And I just beg of your mercy, Lord. I beg, Lord, for um, especially for this church, because this is us here gathered together, I pray, God, you would bless, protect, and lead the marriages the, the parenting relationships and the friendships of the people that we have, Lord. I pray, God, you would guide and direct and purify. And I pray, God, that we would be good and adequate examples of the grace that we've experienced with you. So you bless us as we go, Lord. Help us not to forget these things. May we chew on these things and meditate on these things. And may you show each person here practically how we can apply these things, that we might live your word out, that your word not return void. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. I love you guys. Thanks. Have a great night.